Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to episode 100. Yes, that is episode 100 of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here with co-host Pete Wall and producer Jack Mills for our centenary, gentlemen. Our centenary. How are we feeling about this? Psyched? Well, well, hold your horses, Mr. Anderson. I am in a celebratory mood, as are you. But let's not call it our centenary for all three here, because, Jack, you are a newcomer to this show. <laughs> You've been here, what, a mere, like, 60 episodes or something? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, pitch in a little bit before you're going to get that kind of credit. <laughs> but yeah, super excited, man. 100 episodes did it. That's worth something, isn't it? Because ultimately, we're all heading towards a grave at the end of the road. So we might as well get some podcast episodes out there before we get there. It's right? interesting you say that because my, my wife is very lovely of her. It's actually my got wife me a present. Has died. My, no, no. my <laughs> wife has got me a present, a cinema book and a card to say uh, that me, me and you, Pete, are the perfect pair is what the card says inside. And happy 100th episode, which is very sweet that of is, her, I think. That uh, is and delightful. Also she, she did say to me, she was like, well, to be honest, it doesn't seem like that long ago, long ago when you and Pete sat in the spare room in the flat talking about Blue Ruin. And she, I went, what are you doing? And we went, and you like, she was like, and you guys went, we're doing a podcast. And she was like, yeah, whatever, that won't last. <laughs> yeah. And here yeah, we are, yeah. 100 episodes later. Take that. So, Take yes. that, Laura. 100 episodes. <laughs> smoke smoke that. Uh, Jack, I cut you off and, and sullied your good name. You've been here for quite a long time. You must be feeling a little bit of pride in the fact that we've limped over the 100 uh, episode line, surely. Oh, it's quite something, isn't it? 100 is, you know, it's that number that you don't think you're going to get to in life. So I think for 100 podcasts to be produced is pretty excellent. Well, I always said that I'd love to get to 100 years of age or 100 podcast episodes, whichever one came first. And we've got here now, so I could die tomorrow and I'd be a happy man. Um, for this show, Paul, as we have discussed in a very organised fashion that we always do before we do these, uh, we are going to do something a little bit different to usual. Generally, as you know, we do this like virtual trip through the cinema thing. Um, we take you on a load of different stages, which all involve various forms of reviewing films. For this week, what we're going to do, because it is the 100th episode and because because we wanted to do something a little bit special, a little bit different, is we're going to hang the show off a top 10 countdown for both me and Paul of not only films that have come out like this week, this month or this year, but actually our favourite films of all times, Paul Anderson, of all times. It's been a difficult list to put together, but yes, our favourite films of all time, not necessarily the greatest, although as we talked about earlier, maybe those are the same thing, maybe they're not, not necessarily the greatest, but our favourite films. So films that really resonate with, with us, basically, whether they be new or old, like just our absolute favourites. Films that, in my case, it's films that I can just watch over and over and over again and still enjoy them just as much. So uh, Jack's come up with three because he hasn't seen ten films yet. So he's got his he's got his three films on his list. So uh, yeah. So before we get to that though, we are going to do brief uh, what would normally be featured is brief reviews of uh, films we've seen this week at the cinema, which this week is uh, uh, the latest Marvel blockbuster Ant Man and the Wasp and the Jason Statham versus a giant shark vehicle, uh, the Meg. So, shall we start on those then, gents, before we go any further? Pete, do you want to... Let's, let's, get, let's get going. 
I would love to. I mean, uh, you don't have to sit next to uh, Jack Mills as he seethes at the latest jab that you've just thrown across from the other side of your safe uh, side of the line. But uh, yeah, we'll get into those countdowns in due course. But like you say, Paul, we're going to do these two reviews. First up, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Um, We'll kick off with that one. As you say, the latest installation in the MCU. Uh, I'm allowed to call it the MCU, right? This is within the canon or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. cool. Uh, So the first movie, as far as I saw it, Paul, was a relatively light if um, not particularly um, sort of awe-inspiring entry into this uh, universe. I like Paul Rudd. He's that kind of, you know, every man that, um, you, you know, it's hard to have, I guess, too many bad things to say about at least his screen persona. And then he's joined for this outing by Evangeline Lilly taking on the Wasp character. This was in Jack's uh, most anticipated of the year, I think, when we did that uh, countdown. So, yeah, I think we were all kind of looking forward to it enough anyway. Uh, the film, as is the progression from the first episode, basically sees the Ant-Man, Paul Rudd character, Um, restricted to house arrest since the events of the first film Um, he has to wear an ankle tag I believe which is activated if he goes outside the confines of sort of his backyard front yard and the the walls of his house and he needs to um, see out I think two years before he can leave the house again and get involved in sort of crime fighting in his Ant-Man persona Um, I don't really care to talk in great detail about the plot here as you can probably tell I want to get into your thoughts Paul how much did you like the first film uh, to kick off and then where does this sit compared to that and why Right, I thought the first film was fine. I thought it had some funny moments. I had a theory that a lot of the funny moments were going to be the work that was left over from Edgar Wright's script uh, that I believe was quite was used still, a lot of which was used for the first film before director Peyton Reed took over, who directs the sequel here. Um, so yeah, I thought a lot of the bit, a lot of it, it was Ant-Man, the first one was amusing, and I thought maybe the funny bits were Edgar Wright. Um, unfortunately, I feel that I was proved right here. I just thought... Ant-Man and the Wasp for me, uh, I think on the back of what we've had this year, we've had Black Panther, which I thought was great. We've had Infinity War, which really, really upped the stakes. I just thought this this sequel felt a bit inconsequential and quite a bit like, I'd say, I mean, Marvel celebrate talking of anniversaries, Marvel celebrating its 10th anniversary this year, which is almost as big as our 100th episode, but not quite. Um, so Marvel celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. I thought that if Ant-Man and the Wasp had come out 10 years ago, I might have been blown away and gone, what a spectacular superhero film it is. But I think in comparison to especially the Marvel films we've had this year, this felt a bit average and a bit lacking. It's the kind of superhero film that I'd almost lost interest in to be honest so I wasn't it's fine for what it is but I wasn't overstruck Pete what, what have you got to add uh, yeah I mean I basically agree with you um, the, the the meat of what you're you're saying there I think that there's fun to be had in this movie like there, there are some set pieces that are really fun I think some of the stuff they do with sort of like not only going uh, down in size but going up in size mm. is quite um, entertaining I think that um, there's a guy in it uh, the actor is called David Dasmalkian um, he's a sort of funny looking guy with a small mouth quite weirdly magnetic and handsome who um, has a sort of comedic role in the movie and there's some other comedic roles I mean Michael Peña's role in this is is essentially comedic and and others as well Uh, T.I. to some degree Um, (laughs) but but yeah, this this David Dasmalkin guy is is uh, for me a, a real standout and a highlight because I think that um, he gets some of the best lines in the film. So like it made me laugh at times, it entertained me with set p- 
pieces at times. I think Evangeline Lilly is very watchable for for a myriad reasons. Um, I think that that like Paul Rudd, as I say, is a, is a likable lead, and so I've got nothing against this movie, man. Like it, you know, I've got nothing against it. I just um, I could wait a couple more years and see another one, I guess. But I don't think I'd be raving about any of the entries in this series, to be perfectly honest. But that's not to say that they're they're bad films by any means. You know that. Jack, what did Jack have you seen? Yeah, I have yet? seen it. Yeah. What did you think? I mean, it was your it was on your anticipated list. So where do you stand on this? Put, t- tell us if we're wrong. It was on my anticipated list. Yeah, obviously going into it with the anticipation of it, I wasn't greatly amused by that. There were some like comedy elements, as Pete and you have said, which I did enjoy, and I did like enjoy sitting down, you know, for how long it was and watching like the action, and the way that they shrank and the way they got big. But apart from that, I would say that they shouldn't have put it out next to Infinity War and next to Black Panther. I think that's probably its biggest problem, to be honest, Jack, is that because Infinity War raised the stakes so highly in the MCU, like for me, that there's post-credit scene in this, which the post-credit scene in this is probably the best bit of the film, because most of the film goes through and it has no real link to Infinity War, so there's no real weight behind what's going on would be my... Where, where do you stand on that? Do you think that let it down a little bit? Do you think it's maybe it's timing of release more than the quality of the film? Or Yeah, I, I just want to jump in and say, you say that that's the best moment of the film, and I'd say it's definitely right up there. Um, I don't know, I wanted to get your opinion, though, when I saw this, Paul, uh, specifically, and Jack's too, but, like, for me, the best Stan Lee cameo in this in this movie the best stanley cameo of all the stanley cameos that he's done over the last 10 years this one was wonderful do you remember what it was no <laughs> it, it, it's essentially about our own totally but he yeah. says something he, he said the the 60 basically like the 60s were a hell of a time oh yeah 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 no yeah yeah, yeah it's a very good stanley it was cameo. fantastic some, some his timing are, was fantastic yeah some the, of them the, are good some of them are bad this one's good this one's good. So, yeah, I mean, Jack, did you, did you come away liking it enough then? Did you sort of sit where we sit? Or? Oh, I'd have to say I'm probably with both of you, to be honest. Uh, it wasn't the best Marvel output I've seen. Um, I absolutely love Paul Rudd. and It was a bit of a shame that he wasn't as quality as when he was in the first one. And maybe, was it Civil War that he was in? The whole sort of Avengers. Um, I really enjoyed him in that, but actually I wasn't too fussed about this film. Shouts also though to Randall Park, uh, the the Asian guy in it, who again has quite a uh, um, rewarding comedy role, let's say, where he has to play things totally straight and he has to keep having these conversations with Paul Rudd where he's sort of like very earnest and feels as if like um, he he misunderstands or takes the wrong thing away from a lot of exchanges and delivers like (laughs) above and beyond what you could possibly expect. And uh, Tim Heidecker's in this thing for about 10 seconds. And I really enjoyed that when they go out onto the the Staten Island Ferry. Tim Heidecker is like presenting the tour, which was wonderful. And I wish he'd got like a bit more screen time but yeah i mean you know it's, it sounds a bit of a blamongy collective review just to say like yeah it's not bad but we're vaguely disappointed <laughs> i guess but at the same time i think that's what a lot of people might feel about this movie like it's far from the bottom of the barrel in terms of marvel output in my opinion anyway and i speak only for myself but at the same time i n- I don't feel like many people are going to be racing out to get the Blu-ray, the 4K or whatever when that comes out in due course. I mean, as a collector of those kinds of things, do you share, you, you share that sentiment? Well, weirdly point? enough, I had the, steel, the 4K steelbook on pre-order and I've since cancelled it. So I was, to be honest, I was pretty nonplussed with the whole event. I didn't find any of the characters particularly that funny. I didn't find the film particularly well written. So I would say for me, it probably is closer to the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think this would be like a new a new good uh, like rubric for rating films that we could have on this show. We won't have it on this show. Uh, where <laughs> where we rate everything based on your anticipation of either getting the Blu-ray, getting the 4K Blu-ray, getting the Steelbook, or like in this case, cancelling your pre-order altogether, which is like the most damning rating it can get. So yeah, no great shakes at Man and the Wasp. Yeah, I mean, or just waiting to see X maybe. But yeah, yeah. yeah um, right. That brings us to the Meg then. I mean, Pete, set up the Meg for us, or, or can we? Can I set this up and just say it's Jason Statham versus a giant prehistoric shark? It, it is. That's pretty much it is. the film. And, it? I, and I would add to that, it's sort of a film of three parts. The first one of which is the film Deep Blue Sea, because you've got people on like a marine test center that's way out into the ocean and riffs a lot on that on that movie, I, I think. Um, but, you know, has distinctions uh, for sure. And then there's a section which riffs on Jaws, the sequence at the end of Jaws, where they're chasing after the shark and putting various things in the ocean to try and attract the shark. And then... Uh, well, we've got a, a, another Jaws riff in terms of banana boats, kids' feet and, and dangling legs in the ocean and stuff like that when the uh, megalodon is causing terror towards... Or, or the Meg, as all of the cast yeah. call the film yeah, throughout, just which is that. great. Just accept that. Yeah, it's, just great. it's just called the Meg. It's called the Meg. Uh, <laughs> just the Meg. But, oh, the Meg's coming. <laughs> but yeah, like long and short of it, Paul is absolutely right, is that this is all about, even in its marketing campaign, uh, Jason Statham, a British action star that we all know and, and I think relatively love at this point, and a giant sort of CGI creation that is is now referred to as, as the Meg. Um, yes. Where to go from there, Paul Anderson? How much did you like this, uh, com- I like this compared to I your like expectations, I guess? I like this quite a lot compared to my expectations, actually. I mean, I thought it would be fun. I actually didn't expect to laugh out loud as much as I did during this film. Um, I want to give it kudos as well, because it should be called Jason Statham and the world's most diverse cast in a Hollywood film in years versus a giant shark as well. That quite in that quite the diversity of, of the casting stood out for me as well. Quite a nice touch, I Dude, think. Dude, this is where we're going to have a, a conversation that we had a few weeks ago, and we're going to sit in exactly the same positions. Because I see your intent, and I, and I applaud your intent of praise in the diversity of the cast to me I'm but is it a cynical it's diversity, cynical cast man diversity, it, yeah. it's cynical and, and yeah, like yeah. you know you, you take that for what it is like great because the cast is diverse I wouldn't want that to be any different at the same time along with Skyscraper this is the most egregiously built from the ground <laughs> up for the Chinese market blockbuster movie that I've seen in quite a while and at the centre of it we've got this really weirdly forced love relationship romantic relationship between the actress Bing Bing Lee uh, who plays Su Yin and the uh, Jonas Taylor character uh, of course played by Jason Statham himself where it just felt like can we not do this part can we not do the part where they're supposed to be uh, yeah that that bit that bit did let it down a, yeah, attracted that's, to each other. that's the weak but, bit but then the you know on the other on the other hand Paul I mean positive things from my standpoint I quite enjoyed Rain Wilson being the uh, billionaire uh, investor into this ocean uh, exploration centre programme um he had fun with that clearly uh, so that was enjoyable Dwight Schrute is suddenly a, a multi-billionaire um, and yeah uh, Ruby Rose is in this thing dude although she's got like sort of early 90s Angelina Jolie sort of stylings about her in this like it, yeah. it's like it's <laughs> yeah, like hackers that, yeah. era Angelina Jolie which is there's nothing wrong with that but it did feel like a bit of a weird throwback in the way that this character is styled and also it's a shame that this Jax character with two X's uh, doesn't actually get very much to do she gets the kind of no. punching buttons on a computer a keyboard for a bit and then she gets the sort of falling into the ocean at some point and flailing about 
out, but she doesn't really get to be like badass. We don't get to see any of the stuff that made her so great in uh, a not great film in the Triple X Xander Cage, Return of Xander Cage movie. So, yeah, I don't know. And John Wick too, as well. Good, um, good and bad. Good and bad for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll be honest. Overall, I came away. I came away really enjoying it. I think I, I, I see what you mean about the, the cynical elements of it. There are elements of the film that don't work certainly, but I think the amount it made me laugh made up for that, and the fact it didn't take itself too seriously. I mean, I think it's going to give if we. If we have a list at the end of the year that says top 10 scenes in a film, the point where Jason Statham deals with the pressure of being under 12,000 metres of water by holding his nose and blowing yeah. is probably one of my favourite moments on cinema screen this year. I mean, that's just how stupid yeah, the yeah. film is. And, can we just, and the finale, I mean, what happens at the end is just incredible. I'm not going to spoil can we that. Just, but, Paul, can we just yeah. talk for a second as well about, like, <laughs> both of us, Jack included also, all three of us, we've got a little bit of experience of what it is like to, uh, to drink a, a beer now and again. Uh, in this movie, Jason Statham, or should I say Jonas Taylor, is uh, brought in for one last job, although he's getting too old for this shit. Uh, at the time, he's living on like Koh Phangan or something in Thailand, and his defining character trait is that he is basically a functioning alcoholic. Then, like, give it ten minutes later, he whips his shirt off, has a shower, and comes out glistening, looking as in shape as he's ever looked in his entire screen career. How is this a man who's been pounding? And then he has a he has a medical as well, and they said, "Oh, he's in perfect." He's health. perfect. He's perfect, mate. He's shriveled his liver for years, but he is in perfect yeah. shape. And by the way, it's because he's drinking a beer that doesn't cause you any problems internally. Which is, I believe, is it Chang that they're very clearly so, yeah. product placing in this movie, which is also awkward. And I would say just one thing on the sort of diversity um, axiom of this discussion that we've got this guy. I'm just looking him up here. Pay. Kennedy, who plays a character, he's an African-American man, he plays a character called DJ Paul, and he gets to just do a load of cliche like, I'm a, I can't swim, I'm the black guy who can't swim, but I can be like, oh hell no, and like stand on the upturned boat and panic and stuff like that, and I just thought like, aren't we a little bit beyond this sort of typecasting for, for this kind of character? Yeah, maybe we should be, and yes, it's, not, it's got its faults. I enjoyed it more than that man the Wasp, I'll be 100% honest, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, basically because Jason Statham's in it, and this isn't a spoiler, it's in the trailer, when Jason Statham just looks out of this weird super submarine thing and he just goes, it's a megalodon. Like, you can't really argue with no, that for me no, in terms can't. of entertainment. You, de you definitely can't. You definitely can't argue <laughs> yeah. with that at all. And like, towards the end of the film... And he definitely punches the shark at one point, so... Yes, he, yes he does. Yes, he does. And and like, all of that stuff's great, man. Like, there were bit, just like weird, the like ballast in the middle of this movie, the, the sort of connective tissue of this movie, I found very clunky and grating and dull. But when you're right, when you get to like certain high points of the film, then yeah, what more do we want? Like we said in the build-up to the movie's release, it was just like we got Jason Statham we got the Meg the Megalodon uh, we're going to have a good time at the cinema I went to see it in IMAX it sounded you know huge it looked huge I just wish that it was a little bit bigger on like actual scares and actual tension and actual character development a little bit but like I'm asking for too much because this is a product made to make money in Asia um, and secondly do you know what though do you know what's great about this what I love about this film is the fact that I was reading today uh, it's had a bigger opening weekend than Robo Rampage and Ready Player One. It's like it's it's baffled analysts and actually gone down very very well at box offices, which is quite entertaining. So uh, but, yes, but, that news, but that for news example, Paul, I know they're totally different, so it's a bit of a redundant comparison. But you would admit, albeit that you're a little bit higher than me on this movie, it sounds like this is not a patch on the shallows. 
as a no, as not, a shark no. movie that we've seen in the last. I would say it's years. my. I would say it's my. Th- I was talking about this with the wife just before we came on air. So I'd say it might well be my third favorite shark movie. So Jaws, The Shallows, and then The Meg. Right. Maybe. Maybe. But yeah, it's not as good as The Shallows. So, so better than Forty Seven Meters Down then. Oh, ah, that's maybe. I think I enjoyed it more. Maybe we'll do a top ten shark movies at some point. Yeah, maybe we will. (laughs) And yeah, I'm glad that you said that, Paul, because I want to shoehorn in um, some little bit of detail before we get into our our really exciting top ten countdown. That I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm basically just waiting to spout a load of opinions on those films, to be honest. But the show has been through, as we've already made clear, a hundred episodes, and in that period, it's transitioned into various different forms. We've kept the same format for about, I would say, what sixty odd episodes. At this stage, uh, it must be something around. Is it that uh, many? Yeah, it must could be, be. F- yeah. fifty or sixty. Uh, we, we've had it, and it's worked really well for us. And we've enjoyed doing the show in that way. And we've had positive feedback in the way that the show changed from sort of its beginnings into that that more rigid format. We want to keep up, obviously, having a recognisable format to the show. But we're going to change slightly the nature of that format. So going forward from episode one hundred, you can expect a little bit more of a flexible format based around three acts. Those acts are going to allow us to sort of slot in dependent on the needs of the show but mostly let's be honest the listeners of the show uh sections that we think are going to be the most engaging the most informative and the most interesting for people who have supported us through all of this time and hopefully will continue to do so in the future so we're really looking forward to the next iteration call it you know strangers uh 1.3 or whatever we're up to in terms of our evolution at this point we're really looking forward to that but at the same time it doesn't mean that we're forgetting about what has got us to the point that we're at now and we're certainly not for a second turning our backs on on a single one of the people who's you know who have listened to the show and, and shared it. And yeah, I like would that. I would add to that if if you if we change the format and you don't like it, for God's sake, tell us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or that. Yeah, they, certainly, t- to be yeah. fair, mate, they, they'll tell us by not listening to the show anymore, and then I will get stressed <laughs> about listener numbers, and then I will tr- just fuck about with the format again. Uh, but yes, yeah. uh, exciting times ahead. <laughs> but more directly ahead of us, Paul, we will come back in just a moment to count down our top 10 films of all time. See that pause there? You thought that pause was for us to Jack to edit in some music in between, but I was actually pausing for dramatic effect. That was so dramatic. That was so that was, so yeah, dramatic exactly. that it almost seemed yeah. like it wasn't planned. Should I go first? Should I start with should I start with number ten? Yeah. Shall we just just remind people? So this is this is ten of our favourite films, the films that we go back to time and time again. Films that we love, films that we essentially couldn't live without, I would say, is a good description of it. Pete, where'd you stand on that? Do you think that's a good shout? Uh, yeah, man. Like, I could do, as you, I'm, I'm sure, absolutely the same, Paul. We could do, you know, 10 different iterations of this list, including 10 completely unique films from one list to the next. <laughs> yeah. The point is that we're doing what comes to mind. And I think that something that stuck with me, and I told you about this at the time, Paul, is I went to see the uh, late author and critic, A.A. A. Gill, uh, not too long ago in this town, uh, doing a sort of a reading and he said that when he does uh, restaurant reviews which is what he was best known for he doesn't really take any notes because he's going to remember what was good about the experience or bad about the experience and the person questioning him said well 
if you don't write anything down, you might forget something that is of note for this review. And he said, well, the thing is about the way that my memory and a lot of people's memory works, if it stands out in your memory, you will, or if it stands out to you at the time, you will remember it later. And I think the thing with these movies is I didn't spend a long time agonizing over my list because I thought what stands out in my memory, that's what I'm going to write down. So that's where I'm coming from. I'm kind of shooting from the hip in terms of what popped into my head when we had this idea. No, basically, I'm pretty much with you, to be honest. And I said, we, we, we kind of we kind of panicked. I was like, what list have you done? Have you done favourites or greatest? I was like, we've done favourites and fine. So yeah, this is greatest. So number 10. I'm going to start. I'm going to come in at number 10. I'm, going, I'm there, Pete. I'm there. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm there at number 10. This is Psycho from Alfred Hitchcock. People may have heard of this film. It's quite famous. Um, it, st- it just sticks in my mind. I think the first time you watch Psycho... And if you go into it not knowing the ending, the end of Psycho is just incredible. Like the and just the way this film is shot, the shower scene is is absolutely incredible. And I think it's for me, it's, it's kind of Hitchcock at, at the peak of his powers. Um, you've got the superb performance from um, the actor playing uh, Norman Bates, um, who is just one of uh, one of horror's most memorable villains, I think. And I think you, you'd be surprised, you'd be unsurprised to know there's a few horrors pop up on this list. But yeah, it's just one of my favourites, I think. And also, I think I, I kind of rediscovered an appreciation for just how beautifully this film shot when the uh, when the Blu-ray came out, because the Blu-ray transfer of this film, if you haven't seen it in uh, high definition, then then do find the Blu-ray because it looks absolutely stunning. It's just beautifully shot and uh, yeah, just incredibly well constructed. Um, yeah, you guys have seen this. I take it, do you guys, psycho fans. I would, assume, yeah, I would hope so. I, I, I basically, I think that the like first section of this film is is like note perfect. Like it. it I, and it's just like a master this is the kind of thing that like if you were running a film course you would play the first section of, of Psycho as just an example of a, a myriad different points on, on great filmmaking technique and then like the f- film itself yeah it works for me it really works for me and I like this one a lot and it easily could have made this list to be fair Paul but like I say so could a hundred other things so yeah do you know what I'm going to add into this as well just for a bit of humour uh, I've got a Psycho still book Let's see how many list <laughs> films in this list well, I've got a still book on. Well, mate, You're I, up next with your number 10. So I, I it's was, like a still book. That's one out of 10. I was kind of assuming <laughs> that before you made your list, you whittled down to things that purely you have steel books of already. Like that's that's the basic bar for things to get over. And then, <laughs> and then you get down to 10. So, Paul, first for me, or 10th for me, I should say, on the list is one that you're going to roll your eyes when I say the title of this film, because I've said it many times uh, to you privately and on this show. Uh, number 10 for me is Martha Marcy May Marlene from director, first time feature director, Sean Durkin. I was going to say, I've never heard you talk about this film, so this surprises me. <laughs> Coming into this list and saying, like, these are things that stick out in our memory, a lot of things with film that stick out for me stick out because they connect with a particular experience in my life. And I think I'm not alone in this. I think it happens for a lot of people. When this film came out and when I saw it for the first time I felt as though I was as lost as the Elizabeth Olsen character in the film in the in the movie she is this girl who escapes from a cult um, and tries to reassimilate into quote-unquote normal civilized life and tries to piece together the sort of fragments of her broken identity now that all sounds very grand if i'm comparing it with my own experience or very dramatic but at the time that i went to the cinema with my brother actually it was in uh, toronto canada and i just was in the in the middle like in the eye of the storm of going through without doubt the most difficult and horrible breakup of my entire life and watching this film was almost like both utterly agonizing 
and really like life affirming in a strange way because even though you're left with this eerie image at the end of the film which is the car following um as she moves on in a i don't want to spoil things too much but i think people are aware of how the film kind of comes to an end um she's trying to get away from her past and there's a car in the rear rear view and will it follow will it not is it really there uh, is she just imagining it and to me like the answer to those questions it almost doesn't need to be explained if you've been through a situation where something in your past is going to haunt you for a long time, is going to stick with you for a long time. There's also a line in the movie, which I've probably changed in my memory, as we often do, but it's where um, when she first leaves this upstate New York, uh, I think it's the Catskills that she's in, not that I know that part of America too intimately, but uh, Elizabeth Olsen's character is on the phone to her sister, played by Sarah Paulson, and um, she says, uh, or they're arranging to be uh, for the pickup, for her sister to come and pick her up and take her away from the situation. Later, that call is referred to where uh, Sarah Paulson's character uh, asks her how she's doing. And she says, Elizabeth Olsen's character says, how far away are we? And she says, oh, from from where I picked you up. And she says, no, from yesterday. And like th- this thing, like many lines in films, parts of films, scenes in films, sticks so deep within me because it's this idea that like time and space is warped by the experience through which you're passing at that particular time. It can be speeded up, it can be slowed down, or it can become so fractured that you don't actually know how far in your rear view what happened to you, the traumas that occurred actually are so yeah maybe i sound like i'm way over the top on martha marcy may marlene because it is so personal to me maybe other people won't connect with it as deeply as i do it seems to be fairly widely critically acclaimed and sits at like 75 on metacritic right now for what that's worth but i I just couldn't recommend it enough and i haven't mentioned and just to close out uh, john hawks as the the leader of the the cult here is in one of his best performances of an absolutely glittering career so yeah highly recommended uh paul what have you got Nine. Uh, at number nine, I have got Ridley Scott's Gladiator. I watched this again the other day, uh, and I just fucking love this film. Like, it's just got for me. It's got as a as a big budget Hollywood production. Gladiator's just got everything. I mean, it's got it's got a brilliant hero, Joaquin Phoenix, almost as a I would say almost a wow. He's done a lot of good films. Almost a career best as the sneering, like really just absolute bastard uh, Emperor Commodus and uh, Russell Crowe on blistering form you've got Richard Harris as the as the kind of the dying emperor Oliver Reed as the slave trader Derek Derek Jacobi turns up in this you've just got incredible set like absolutely incredible set pieces Ridley Scott doesn't hold back on the on the violence and the intensity of it and the soundtrack just has me in bits I cry every time I watch Gladiator at the end I mean that's it's not difficult to come to terms if I cried at Dark Knight Rises for fuck's sake but I, I, I genuinely still cry every time Gladiator finishes the soundtrack the score it's just it's for me it's Hollywood filmmaking it's absolute finest it's where if you're going to pour money into a film make it like Gladiator like it just it just grips from for me it just grips me from start to finish and every time I sit there and go oh I'd almost forgotten how good this film is so yeah just just Gladiator it's great <laughs> like I'm gushing a bit but You've I love got it the steel book though, right <laughs> I have got a still book of that. Nice. Yes, that's two, two for two. Two for two. Fantastic. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep checking back in on that one. That's a, that's a 4K still book for Gladiator as well. Oh, oh high praise. High <laughs> praise indeed. 
Um, number nine for me, sticking with something of a, a, a downbeat theme, um, is going to be uh, the Alexander Payne movie, Nebraska, from 2013. And again, maybe, you know, now people will be uh, rolling their eyes and thinking like, oh, you only like films for the last 10 years. This is not the case. But at the same time, um, what connects this with Martha, Marcy May Marlene, is that it also connects with a breakup, because I'm quite good at those. Uh, but in this case, much happier in, in, in terms of the fact that the uh, woman that I will be marrying this year, uh, Francesca, my fiance, and I uh, reunited essentially over the movie Nebraska. Um, we had the, the rather um, probably misguided idea that we should go to see a movie as sort of post-breakup friends which, uh, you know, is always a, always a sensible plan. But in this case, it worked an absolute charm because what happened is this amazing sort of alchemy that can happen in a cinema, I think, where you're sat alongside someone and you're sort of essentially passive and you're in the dark and, you know, you don't even really look at each other. But I could feel at the moments in the film where, like, her spirit sort of rose and soared or, like, when she just laughed out loud that it chimed so well with how I was being transported by this movie. It is a fantastic film, uh, Nebraska, by the way, and that's why it's here. Uh, and it tells this story about uh, the Bruce Dern, who is now well into his 80s, I, I would guess. Uh, Bruce Dern's character and his son, who is played by Will Fort or Will Forte, I don't know what we're going for on that one, um, they have to take, or they, they are led to take, a road trip because Dad believes that he's won the, is it the pools or the some kind of local lottery? It's not the national lottery, but it's like a pools coupon thing that he's got. And he thinks that this is going to entitle him to some money, or at least he makes out that he thinks that it, it's going to entitle him to some money. The film is about bonding with your father, which again resonates with me hugely. Um, it's about the, the power of like travel to change the way that you feel about static situations in your life. It's about the fact that June Squibb does absolutely amazing swearing in a graveyard in this movie. Um, funnily enough, Paul Anderson, have you seen the film Would You Rather? Uh, no, not yet. Right, well, don't rush to it because it is dreadful. But okay. <laughs> uh, I saw it just recently. And in that movie, the very same June Squibb is elbowed in the face by Sasha Gray, who is an actress with whom uh, you might have some familiarity. Um, I've never heard of her. So, so yeah, th this was a, an oddity about the June Squibb traje trajectory for, for such a storied and, and wonderful actress as she is. Uh, Bob Odenkirk's in this thing as well. He's always good. Uh, yeah, just, I don't know, man. It's heartfelt. It's fantastically written, as you'd expect from Alexander Payne. It hits a load of different buttons and chimes with a load of different experiences in my life. I love it. I'll go back to it time and again. And I guess the equivalent to your steelbook metric, Paul, is that I have this on Blu-ray. And in my humble existence, <laughs> as someone who has zero steelbooks, as, as far as I can think, uh, that is high praise indeed from me. So, yeah, that's my number nine. What's number eight for you? Uh, this is Mad Max Fury Road, uh, which we saw together, Pete, in IMAX, oh, if I remember rightly. Fantastic. And that yeah. was an exhausting experience. Um, yeah, I just think this, this for me, is one of my number one action films of all time. It's just an absolutely uh, relentless roller coaster of a cinematic experience. Yes, the story's lacking. Yes, but and I agree with all those criticisms. But I think when it's when you've got action cinema designed as this frenetic, I don't think it matters. And the fact you've got physical effects and when you watch it when you watch the making of the bit where the petrol tanker explodes you're like oh it's great they're blowing up models no they blew up an actual petrol tanker like they're not messing around in this film I just think it's 
this redefined action cinema in the way that's going to be shot. And from a, and from a, a more personal moment, um, as much as as much as I've I had issues with my father, shall we say, he very much got me into film. Actually, the last probably activity we shared together and the last film we saw, I took him to see this at the cinema because he was a huge Mad Max fan. Uh, and then we went out for dinner and he had, a, considering he was dying of cancer, he had a big plate of ribs and seemed to enjoy his time at Frankie and Benny's. So I knew he was unwell because he would fucking hate Frankie and Benny's normally. But we saw, uh, we saw Mad Max Fury Road together. He loved it. And I'm pretty sure, uh, certainly the last film we watched together, if not the last film that he watched, because I think he passed away two or three weeks after that. So I have an emotional attachment to that film being the last, certainly the last film that I shared with my father. And he is prob- mainly responsible for my love of film. So yeah, there's there's emotional attachment to it as well, but also it's incredible. Yeah, and what you said, Paul, so, when yes. you were talking about Gladiator in terms of like, if you're going to make big Hollywood, uh, you know, f- film spectacle, make it like Gladiator. Well, absolutely, I would say that about Mad Max. Like if you're going to make big, bombastic action cinema, you would do well to have a look at the, the feat that is the production of that movie, as you mentioned. You would. And, and, and the way in which, like, if you think about it on paper this film should not work at all. Like, it is essentially people driving across a desert for two hours. That is what it is. And that is what people were saying early on, is like, how is this going to sell? How is it going to play at the box office? But it is carried off with, like, such unbelievable, like, (laughs) jaw-dropping aplomb and commitment to a cause that, like, yeah, I think about it all the time. It's an action movie. It's a a kind of throwaway in in, in certain sense. But I think about this movie a lot. and, and, And that is testament to the fact that, yeah, it had a huge impact on me too. And I went into the film, to be honest, when we went to see it at the IMAX, I, I had some sort of fit of like anxiety. I don't know about what, but I remember sitting in the seat pre the movie and thinking like, oh, I'm not really, Paul's going to like this a lot more than me. And maybe I'm not really invested and maybe I'm going to tune out a bit. And I was absolutely wrapped. So yeah, it's, it's a fantastic pick, that one. Uh, no still book, but are you ready? No still book on this one, but I do have a box set edition with a replica of Max's car. <laughs> So I reckon that probably ups the, ups the ante on still yeah, it does. So let's let, let's oh, use that fantastic. as let's say still book. <laughs> Right, yeah, so, that's, that's close enough, I think. So, uh, <laughs> what have you got next, Pete? Ripping through to number eight, and we will take a little break, I think, halfway through our countdown to catch our breaths. And, uh, and actually, producer Jack has made, um, as you mentioned earlier on, Paul, a, uh, a little countdown as well that we want to... What number are we on now? I've got uh, three. Uh, I? Yeah, I'm on to number eight, so we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, we're, we're cruising through the desert of yes. these reviews. But uh, yeah, number eight for me, uh, you think that I can't go back further than 10 years, so damn you, I'll go 15 years. From, two th- oh. from 2003, <laughs> My number eight pick is the documentary Touching the Void. Ooh, and again, uh, as you might have guessed by now with the theme of this thing, um, it's going to be for, for very personal reasons. This film comes to mind for me, I would say, at least once a month, if not more. And the reasons for that are, are multiple. But to set up very briefly, if, in case you have no idea what I'm talking about, the story is of two climbers who go climbing in the Peruvian Andes and they are trapped in bad weather. During this weather uh, front, one of the men breaks his leg and he sort of got his shin bones has gone all the way through his kneecap or something horrible. And um, he is completely incapacitated. He can't do anything. And all that they've got is the hope that the healthy man can... I've almost knocked a light down in my room there. Uh, the The healthy one of the two can help him and support him in descending the mountain, getting down to the glacier and getting obviously back to safety and medical treatment and that kind of thing. Uh, So yeah, in this situation, we get one of the most cinematic uh, sort of set pieces that you could possibly imagine. Or in terms of like the dramatic tension that you would expect from sort of narrative cinema, because 
the healthy man is at the top of the rope and he's lowering his friend down 30 feet, I think, at a time because this is the length of rope that they've got. And at a certain point, he's not given back slack by the guy with the injury at the other end. And the reason he's not given back slack, it turns out, is because he's lowered his friend over the edge of the cliff. Um, He's left with a decision that no one would ever want, which is if I stay here, I die. And if I cut the rope, my friend dies. And in the end, he makes the decision and he cuts the rope. This is all in in the trailer for the thing. Uh, And it leaves the the second man in a vertical uh, crevasse, ready to basically contemplate the fact that he is going to die slowly, completely alone completely alone with no means of communication with no hope with no way of getting out of that situation and to me it would be too easy to say that this is just a a, you know a stuck on metaphor for for clinical depression but it is a little bit like that and um at, at one point he says this thing which maybe again seems innocuous but he says when you're in a situation uh, like this one, because obviously, you know, all of us are getting stuck in crevasses every other week. When you're in a situation like this one, you've got to keep making decisions because if you don't make decisions, you're buggered, as he says. And yeah, it's always stayed in my head. No matter how bad the situation is, it's more important to make a decision than to agonize about making the right decision. Um, The story is unbelievable. If it wasn't, you know, in, in documentary form with the, the guys telling it themselves, you'd think that it was completely made up and sort of fan- the fantasy of some Hollywood screenwriter. Touching the Void is is such a such a powerful, like, human drama. And, yeah, it's going to stick with you for, for years, I think. It's brilliant, yeah, I have to say. And I think it's... I first watched it as a bit cynical. Was, I don't know why I was cynical about it, to be honest. I, d- I have no idea why I went into it with a kind of cynical outlook. But, yeah, I came away and it's... a. Uh, it's what I've, I think it, it, it marks out what we've said before about documentary is actually to make a good documentary, you still do need to have some sort of tenements of narrative filmmaking in there. Uh, and otherwise, the, the end product isn't entertaining. Uh, and this come, this is as exciting as as a narrative, as a piece of narrative action cinema, for example, like, or as gripping as any narrative drama, really. Uh, so, yeah, if you haven't seen it yet, then find it. It's widely available. But, yeah. I'm with you on Peter. Yeah, it's at least this really kind is. of documentary about a series of events. I mean, because yeah. a companion piece to this would be something like Into the Abyss, the Werner Herzog movie about death row, which I yeah. think deals with like a lot of similar areas, actually, and is moving in some sort of similar ways. But yeah, uh, it, it's amazingly told, amazingly told, and just so highly recommended. I mean, I could have put a bunch of different documentaries on here, and I went for this one. So yeah, get to it. Um, Paul, what have you got next? Uh, at number seven... Yep. Are we on number seven? At number yep. seven, look at me keeping up. Uh, this is uh, the Coen Brothers 1998 effort, The Big Lebowski. Uh, no still book, but digi book. I'll get that in first, which is uh, which has got a collectible, nice bit of uh, nice bit of spiel about the film on it. There's a 4K release coming out with a bowling ball and a bowling ball bag, so I'll probably order that. But anyway, moving on. Uh, yeah, so I mean, a lot's been said about The Big Lebowski, and for me, it just sums up the Coen Brothers in in one film. Really, it's completely irreverent it's just full of larger than life characters jeff bridges as the dude and john uh, john goodman as walter is just one of for me cinema's greatest ever double acts like the dude is this 
sort of peace-loving, weed-smoking pacifist, and Walter is just this complete asshole of a Vietnam vet who the two of them just play off each other so well. And the film is just so, so silly throughout that it really shouldn't work. And as the film sort of as the film goes on and on and on and on and plays on like it's it's got so many great set pieces the bowling that where, where Walter pulls a gun at the bowling alley is incredible you've got the sub you've got this classic sort of Cohen character Cohen brothers characters as Jesus the the, the bowler uh, who apparently has been year, for years has been getting a spin-off film but it's just for me it's just the Cohen's firing all cylinders everything that make the, it makes the Cohen brothers great is is in here all the the crazy Peter Stormare is playing one of the nihilists um, just, I think almost everyone here gives a, a, a not far off career best turn uh, in the Big Lebowski, and then the way the film kind of wraps up and just ultimately proves to be about absolutely nothing because they've got the wrong Lebowski, and yeah, it's just it. It consistently makes me laugh. It's endlessly quotable, and then you've got the and Julianne Moore's character as well as is the crazy artist, and then that whole the whole trip scene, which is like the music video where he's tripping, where he's tripping out and he's going down the bowling alley and knocks over the pins, and just yeah, just everything about the Big Lebowski. I just love it. I absolutely love it. I can't. I can't. You. There's not. There are no. There's no possible way. There's too many times you can watch the Big Lebowski. But but ultimately, that's just like your opinion, man. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, isn't this a bit of serendipity, Paul Anderson? Because uh, on a bowling kick right now, uh, my next pick, so I'm up to number seven as well, I think, yeah, uh, is is uh, a, a somewhat controversial pick, maybe, from Vincent Gallo. This is 1998's Buffalo 66. Now, fight me if you don't like this film, because, again, it's just a personal one. I understand that there is criticism about the fact that uh, a very young Christina Ricci on set did not feel comfortable some of the time. I think that would be the story for a lot of young actresses going into a project directed by such a um, uh, uh, single-minded, for want of uh, slightly less polite words, uh, character character as uh, Vincent Gallo but such a tit a, you mean <laughs> as, I, I love him Paul I love him but I still wouldn't argue that point um, <laughs> yeah this this is a story of a guy who's just been released by uh, from prison um, called Billy Brown who's played by Vincent Gallo and he went to prison it turns out because he um, took the fall for somebody else uh, he did that because he owed a great deal of money he owed a great deal of money because he made a bet Paul he made a bet one day on the Buffalo Bills and that bet did not come in uh, the film is about his relationship with his parents the film is about his relationship with the girl that got away when he was at school or at least didn't even want to look at him when he was at school um, played by uh, Rosanna Arquette not Patricia Rosanna Arquette um, it's about his relationship with his cap his captive companion in Christina Ricci, who, yeah, he kidnaps early in the film because he needs someone to keep up appearances to make his parents, for once, feel proud of what he's done with his life. And we get these incredibly sort of both awkward and funny sequences where his parents, who are um, played by Ben Gazzara and Angelica Huston, are so dismissive of their son as to make you root for him against the very fat like against your better nature because what you've seen is this guy kidnap a person be kind of homophobic there's no getting around that at the beginning of the movie he is a flawed man yet when they're saying for example and it is a funny line but when angelica huston says get the billy picture 
because there is one photograph from his entire childhood. You think like, my heart goes out to this man, even though he's broken. And you know what, Paul, a lot of us are broken, a lot of us are imperfect, and a lot of us make horrible mistakes in our lives. But at the same time, that moment towards the end of Buffalo 66, where he reaches one finger off one hand across the middle divide of the bed that he shares with Christina Ricci to touch her finger, because for a second he might believe that he could allow someone else into his heart is a lesson that we could take away with from this movie without all being cynical about our preconceived ideas of Vincent Gallo maybe. Vincent Gallo genius or or tyrant you decide but Buffalo 66 is a fantastic movie. I haven't seen it for a very long time Pete I have to say so I will probably revisit it now. I have seen it once but it was many years ago so I will re- based on that recommendation I will give it a revisit. Well, we are now number six. This is the last up one to number break. six. That yeah, correct? that's right. So at number six, uh, ooh, this is this is four uh, K steelbook. I'll just throw that in there because uh, it's quite it's quite limited. This one. Uh, this is Dario Argento's seminal, and I know some people hate it. Seminal horror film Suspiria, which is getting remade this year by. Uh, by the guy that made Call Me By Your Names. We talked about this last week. Um, so yes, this is Suspiria from 1977. Um, it's just visually, I think it's just a one-off. Like the way Argento's use of colour in this film is basically, it makes the film. Uh, it just looks absolutely staggering. There's nothing else quite like it out there. The way, um, the way in which when you approach the... So basically to... The plots kind of a, 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 girl, a young girl goes to a ballet school uh, in the deepest, darkest Europe somewhere, uh, and it basically it's a ballet school is the home to a coven of witches, and it all gets very, very twisted, as you can imagine, from an Argento film. But it's just the way the film is shot is incredible. The use of color is just absolutely striking, absolutely striking. The way that in the way the colors used, um, the Goblin score as well is just superb, which is Argento's band Goblin. There's just, even though it does at times drift into sounding a little bit like Footloose, so that might ruin Suspiria for you out there. If you like the soundtrack, it does at times sound a lot like Footloose, which is quite annoying in places once you realize that. But um, no, for me again, it's it, Argento's a director I've always loved. Uh, and this is another this is another example of a director at the height of his power really uh, if you haven't seen it see it it won't be to everyone's taste in 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 uh, i know a few people that have seen it and struggle with how it's dubbed that was unfortunately how italian films were made at the time they were bizarrely overdubbed with an english soundtrack afterwards so it uh, to a technical perspective and that kind of thing yes it doesn't all work but it's just for me it's a film it's a one-off. It's just a film with so much character and energy that it just couldn't be sort of made by anyone else. It couldn't be any other film. So I'm intrigued to see what they do with the remake. I hope Luca Guadagnino does something very different with it. I don't think he's got an option but to do it. But Suspiria, especially from a visual a visual perspective, is one of those films that just always sticks with me, and I I can't I can't watch it enough really. And you, Pete, have you seen Suspiria? Are you, are you that familiar with it? Have I seen Suspiria? How dare you affront me with this kind of question? I've seen Suspiria a few times, yeah. Uh, the, the two most memorable of those were an outdoor screening, just whilst, because I'm going to get defensive now, an outdoor screening that I saw in, in South Korea, which was very memorable, and then another one, which stands out maybe more so, which was when I was in a Korean hospital the night before a s- intrusive surgery, I decided it would be a good idea on my laptop to re-watch Suspiria, which is a film that like trades on a load of shadows behind curtains, and I was in a dark foreign hospital 
school where a load of shadows were moving behind curtains. It didn't settle me down, Paul. It did not settle me down on that night. So yeah, love it. Love it. Great choice. Yeah, uh, as I said, it's absolutely what I said. There's a few horror films in this, but it's absolutely one of my favourites. And certainly, I think uh, one of the most one of the most influential of the of the uh, sort of the the Italian Italian horrors, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, Pete, before the break, I believe you've got your number six to come in. I do indeed. Yeah. Um, so this one for me, uh, going back a little bit further, this is all about Eve from 1950. I think I talk about it, talked about it briefly on the show at some point. Um, th- this is an unbelievably good film and could be number one. And these numbers are not that important, really. But this is uh, directed by Joseph Mankiewicz and it stars both Bette Davis and Anne Baxter. Anne Baxter's character is uh, called Eve Harrington in the movie and she is, at a surface level, she's like an ingenue, up-and-coming actress who aspires to be like Margot, the Bette Davis character, who she apparently idolises. And I say all these things as if they're sort of in inverted commas because this film turns into something much more than simply a young actress following in her idol's footsteps. And it becomes about manipulation and it comes about doublespeak and it becomes about uh, dishonesty and backhandedness and uh, some of the most like electric dialogue that I've ever witnessed in any film from any generation. Uh, Bette Davis is amazing in it. You've also got like a, a fairly short cameo from a, a young Marilyn Monroe. I think she's like 22 or something when they made this movie, but is already got this kind of luminosity about her and plays an absolute dummy as she was, you know, <laughs> typecast to for a lot of her career, I suppose. Uh, yeah, and says some just ridiculous things. I wish I had quotes to hand. But um, yeah, the the story is is just fantastically told and it's told with this sort of love for the craft of screenwriting and the love for the craft of writing movie dialogue. Um, I could watch it over and over and over again till the end of time. It, it, just a, just fantastic. I don't know, I'm gushing. Um, it's currently sitting at 98 on Metacritic, incidentally. So um, I'm not alone, I guess, in, in my praise of this movie. But it, it's one of those that you might feel like, um, and I don't want to talk for you, uh, listener who has no comeback right now, but like you might feel like this 1950 movie all about Eve, like maybe this is going to be a dull, stale kind of disconnected from my reality maybe I don't need to go back to that maybe I need to watch more contemporary movies and I just like compel you to get rid of that idea because this stands toe to toe with anything that you'd get from I mean and and I'd say arguably head and shoulders above anything you get from even the finest writers of dialogue these days like an Alexander Payne or or a Wes Anderson or a Noah Baumbach or whoever you want to name so um yeah he's brilliant all about Eve get on it Paul, before we go to a break, I teased it earlier, I think we should call in uh, producer Jack Mills from, uh, well, just to my right, for, uh, <laughs> for a little, what is it, top, top three, right? Yeah, I've got a top three. Uh, I don't know if you want me to do them all or wait until after the break. It's up to you. Yeah, do them. No, go, go jump into them and then we'll take the break and then we'll come back with the, the second half of the countdown, I think. Okay, so they're not really in any particular order, but uh, I've been thinking about these films for the whole week, really, sort of sussing out which ones I'd put in my top three, which is quite a short list if you think about it. But yeah, as Paul said, I've only watched three films in my life, so, uh, you know, it's one of those things. Ouch, Uh, I consider myself told. (laughs) Yes, uh, so the first film I picked was uh, 1979's Quadrophenia, and for me, the reason I picked this film is because... It was one of the first films that I sort of sat down with my dad and watched as a sort of a teenager and sort of understood it and the way that they sort of 
go to Brighton and ride their bikes and sort of take drugs and that sort of thing. And also it's 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 a very sort of strong film about belonging and sort of clicking with a group of people. And for me at the time, I found that quite difficult and I was quite sort of uh, quiet and lonely when I was a kid. So actually this sort of stuck out for me. It's um, um it's Phil Daniels in this, isn't it? Yeah, the guy Phil from Daniels. the from the um Park Life uh voiceover, you know, in that blur yeah, track. Yeah, in the blur, yeah. yeah, in the blur video, yeah. You um, know you know, um Jack, with your review there, you've just woken me up to the fact that I've never seen Quadrophenia. Uh, have you seen it, Paul? Yes. <laughs> great 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 input. <laughs> Crackling input there, Anderson. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, I've never seen it. So, so um, I think, you know, this was it was it was a fairly low budget film when it came out, and actually I think, you know, as British cinema goes, it is it's quite a big film on there and I think a lot of people have watched it. So I think, yeah, if you haven't, Pete, go and check it out. My next film that I was going to talk about uh, is one that came out fairly recently, last couple of years, called um, Captain Fantastic, uh, who, which was directed by Matt Ross and it stars your favourite guy from Lord of the Rings, uh, Viggo Mortensen. I yeah. think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, the reason I like this film is because of just... The way in which he, as a parent, educated his children in like a forest scenario, they're off the grid, they're sort of, they're not doing things that normal people say would do. Uh, and I think it it's an excellent film in the way that he sort of brings his kids up as a single father. Um, and I think that would be quite an interesting life to live. And I think that's sort of connecting the way that this is something that I'd quite like to do. Yeah, and I was just going to jump in and say, but Jack, isn't it interesting in that movie, though, that like he brings his kids up, as you describe it, like in the wilderness, cut off from general society, normal society, quote unquote. But then the film deals, to some degree anyway, with where like as viewers, we're take along, taken along on this ride where we think like, oh, everything that he's doing is sort of like beyond and above what regular, dull, you know, locked into the grid folks do. But then when that family start hitting some problems with like the education board, with the yeah, planning of the funeral, with having to come out and interact with society, you do start to then have to think a bit more deeply like, is this right for those children? Is there a, an extent to which he is actually quite selfish and damaging in the way that he raises his children? Or, yeah, like self-interested, generally speaking. I think, as you say, there are, you know, there's a lot of challenges with it. The way that the film portrays those challenges is excellent. Um, although, you know, like uh, his oldest child in it, as he accesses the new, like, I suppose, a new life, as in he goes and sees what, that other people do, I suppose, if you call them that. This is George George Mackay, right? It's a, a, yeah. But Bodavan is his actual name. Yeah, Bodavan. Uh, so there his, are his some really it, yeah. like interesting names like Vesper and... Keeler. Keeler, that's yeah. the one. Yeah, yeah. And, and George Mackay, I say it's George Mackay as if everyone would know who that is, but uh, Paul and I, we discussed uh, George Mackay with the Secret of Marabone review recently because I think he's quite good and I think you thought he was less good in that movie, but he's this kind of... He looks kind of like... Yes, he he looks like a sort of reanimated corpse of a lad, and uh, he's got sort of sunken, haunted eyes, and yeah, he's an interesting guy to look at. I think my favourite scene has to be um, when they're sort of they're driving down the road to go to this funeral that they've had to organise for their their mother. If you haven't seen it, Um, and he they're all reading just really bizarre, very sort of adult themed uh, books, uh, fiction books, Um, and he's asking them lots of questions about it. And they're very sort of like, they answered them on the spot. And I thought that was an excellent sort of scene. For my final pick uh, of my top three um, would have to be Ascana Darkly, 
uh, from 2006. Um, oh, Richard choice. Linklater directed this, and it's uh, based on the Philip K. Dick novel. Go and read it, I would suggest. Keanu Reeves is in this, um, which I think is one of his all-time... One of my all-time favourite performances from him. However... Is it, do you think his best performances are pr- primarily when he is rotoscoped? I think, <laughs> however... Robert Downey Jr. Um, takes takes the ball with this film before, obviously, Iron Man, and this was obviously when he was in a lot of trouble and stuff, and I think this performance is great. The thing that stood out for me in this film is that it's actually a watercolour um, animated. I suppose you could call it watercolour, couldn't you? Um, it's it's rotoscope, yeah. It's, oh, but okay, it's like cool. no, it, but it is, <laughs> but it's not a million miles from what you say. Like they basically taken the the film stock and then like yeah. sort of um like sketched over the top of it to produce the the final image. So yeah, it's it's actually really interesting to watch like any of the extra feature stuff where they talk about that that process because yeah, no, it's of like because he did it with yeah. waking he did it with waking yeah, life. Waking life is tremendous, by the way. Um, yeah, and this is a very this is a very trippy film, and I think that stands on the ground that it is about a brain ultra drug and it's just like i think that one of the the greatest scenes of this is when woody harrison and robert downey jr's character are completely off their their heads and they're just having the most bizarre but amazing conversations um and i think the other thing is when keanu reeves is uh he's in this bodysuit that basically changes his face to like a di- uh, like a million different faces and that was that was some really cool work on screen that they they managed have to you, do i've got i've got to say because it came up a second ago have you seen waking life yes I have right right waking i was going to say because yeah. if you haven't like from what you're saying like rush out and see yeah, it no, of t- t- today or whatever i haven't in fairness so, yeah. yeah i think um you know three picks that it did take me a while to sort of narrow them down um some honorable mentions if you're allow me to yeah yeah say these. yeah sure. uh, yeah go for it yeah, um yeah. i would have to say would be lost boys uh which is a 1980s vampire film which i just i loved and obviously didn't watch it when it came out and it was just one of those teen films that sort of stood out for me uh and then oh this is a tough one it would have to be fear and loathing in las vegas um oh, good show yes good show. uh excellent film with johnny deppin there is a there is a, a loose theme emerging that connects a couple of your picks, which is uh, excessive drug taking, Jack. There is quite a lot of drug use. Yeah, in no, I did think that. Yeah, yeah, you probably sussed something out there. Um, but I think a lot of these films, yeah, I watched when I was a lot younger, and I think they've stuck with me until now. Yeah. I'm, 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 well, that's but that's absolutely all, all you can ask for from a list like this, I think, because as we said at the top, Paul, like, you know, it's very easy for everybody to sort of stroke their chins and say, like, oh, we're going to debate the the greatest bona fide films of all time. To be honest, to me, it's all bullshit. It doesn't really matter because, yeah, there are films that you can hold up as sort of canon as uh, canon's the wrong word uh, as like um, I've lost the word that I'm looking for, but like that are sort of. Sacrosanct. Yeah, like kind of beyond reproach when it comes to like film criticism to whatever extent, yawn, I don't care. I think that this kind of list should just be about what sticks out to you. What did you get the most out of? What hit you most on an emotional level or on a on a sort of intellectual level? So yeah, or just like pure enjoyment. So yeah, good picks. I enjoyed it. Um, we will take, I think, a little break right now so that we can gather our thoughts. We can come back refreshed and we can hit our top five films of all time right 
Right, so we're back. This is our top five, and I said it's favourite film. So do you know what? I had Blade Runner at number five, uh, and I'm taking Blade Runner out at number five. I think Blade Runner's an incredible film. I absolutely bloody love it. But going from what you were saying, Pete, do you know what's going in? Transformers, the animated movie, is going in at number five of my all-time favourite films. <laughs> That's going in. I'm sorry, it's in there. It's just, it's one of, it's certainly my favourite film as a child. If I'm ever feeling remotely pissed off or depressed Transformers the animated movie will go on it's absolute nonsense the storyline is atrocious the film basically exists just to launch new toy lines but the soundtrack is incredible which I believe you might have heard me sing at my wedding in fact definitely one of those songs that I had to shirtless karaoke to at my wedding reception was a song from Transformers animated movie soundtrack so that shows you how dear this film beautiful is to my heart yes. oh yeah it was a very it was a very uh it was a very, um, very civilized party for our wedding reception, shall we say? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's got such like it's got Peter Cullen voicing Optimus Prime, who's just incredible in it. it with such lines as, you know, uh, all we need now is a little energon and a lot of luck. And then you've got um, Frank Weller as Megatron, just an absolute bastard. Uh, Unicron, you've got this giant robot that turns into a planet, then that eats planets, and then just destroys all the other Transformers. The Autobot Matrix of Leadership. It's chaos. It was my favourite toys as a kid. It's my favourite movie as a kid. And it's a film that just stays with me and stays with me. And as I said, every time I'm feeling remotely miserable, uh, I put this on and I really, really enjoy it. And do you know what, guys? I've got a still book. <laughs> of course you have. I mean, to be honest now, Paul, once we get into the top five, you're embarrassing yourself if you haven't got the steelbook. Oh, ouch. Because there are a couple in this top five where I haven't got steelbooks for, but thank Well, you, you better that. have some figurines or something, a cardboard <laughs> cutout at minimum. Uh, what um, have you got at number five? T- talking of Transformers, Paul, this is a kind of Transformers film if uh, we're talking about transforming a relationship into utter debilitating sadness. Because uh, my number five pick oh, Have you watched is... The Escape? Oh, no, this is... <laughs> <laughs> no. The, my number five pick is a ghost story from 2017. It was my film of the year last year. I've talked about it a number of times. I won't belabor the point, but... Uh, phew, I don't know, man. Like, I think I mentioned on our show a few weeks ago, I rewatched this for the third or fourth time recently, and I almost got into rewatching it and thought, like, I've made a horrible mistake here because I can't just watch this in a sort of, um, you know, detached, film fanny kind of way and pick up on little nuances of the way the thing was made like I would with a lot of other rewatches. It, again, just, like, grabs me by the heart and and squeezes tears straight out of there. Um, the The... The imagery of um, the ghosts in a ghost story uh, as they are falling to the ground, uh, at least in in one case, when they realise that the person that they're waiting for has forgotten them or at least seems to have forgotten them and isn't coming back is is absolutely crushing. Um, There's obviously the the sequence that got a lot of attention, which is the the emptiness and sort of despair that leads Rooney Mara to eat a a pie from beginning to end in in a single shot, which um, I think is a very powerful sequence. But for me, for whatever reason, I think that if I had to pick one moment in the whole thing that stands out the most, it would be when um, Rooney Mara is lying on the floor and she's got her like over ear headphones on. And she's listening back to the track that um, her 
now deceased husband uh, Casey Affleck's character has uh, composed had composed before he passed away and what he'd spent all his time sort of agonising over whilst he was neglecting their relationship and sort of sticking in, in the mud and not wanting to move on and not wanting to make decisions as she sort of points out in an argument that they have and she um, yeah, is hearing this thing to come together and it's uh, a track by this band I think they're called Dark Rooms um, called I Get Overwhelmed and I think I put the entire lyrics up on one of our Instagram posts recently because it like call it kind of indie shoegazy wank if you want but like the the sentiment in the lyrics of that song about being up late at night like playing video games because you just don't want to switch off and you don't want to let go because you you don't want to face up to the fact that sort of everything's broken is um if you're of a certain disposition is certainly going to resonate with you just a little bit and at the time that she's listening to this piece of music she reaches her arm back and sort of above her head on the ground and she comes within millimeters of touching the bottom hem of the sheet that hangs over the ghost that was once the person that she shared her life with um anyone who's been in a relationship is in a relationship now or has a had a relationship with another human being i i think if you give it the chance can't fail to be moved incredibly by this movie and like the scope of the thing as well it's not just about a couple in in a house um over a period a short period of time and a, and a death it's about um the the development of human history um it's about like everything being transient and and the ability of everything to be sort of destroyed and bulldozed over and moved on from but within all that I don't know that this is a depressing film I think I've come to a point with a ghost story where I see a lot of hope in it and I see a lot of positive in it and I think that although David Lowry made the film when he was going through a particular um, form of like existential crisis I think that there's room in there if you are ready to look for it where you can see um, great hope and like dude the moment when the ghost finds the note and there's all again all this speculation like you get when I talked about Martha Marcy May Marlene like at the end what's the situation or like at the end of Inception what's the situation or whatever and people like to debate that till you're blue in the face with this movie it's what's on the paper but it doesn't really matter what's on the paper, does it? Because all it is is that the person that was there cared enough and wanted to, you know, communicate something across time. And I think the message that I came away with anyway is that there is value in communicating something across time and that's all we can ever really do. So um, I, I may have brought the mood down a little bit, but what have you got next next on your list? I mean, it's, it has a similar impact. It has, no, I think Ghost Story has a similar impact to Transformers the Animated Movie, if I'm honest. So <laughs> yes, it does. I think they're actually compa- comparable yes, films. So uh, yeah, it's a fairly similar similar in that position. What have I got next, next on my list? Uh, I have got the next on my list and I'm telling you that this is fact. This is the most atmospheric and chilling horror movie of all time. This is Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, I almost put it this on mine. Is, it is nothing short of incredible. Like, the atmosphere that this film evokes from beginning to end is terrifying. The scene in which the family are eating dinner, still to this day, I cannot watch that in any... I must have seen it. 10, 12 times, if not more. Uh, I, I can, oh, probably more than that, because I did my dissertation on this film as well. That's just reminded me, which is a treat. Uh, every time you watch that scene, it makes my skin crawl. It's just an exercise in perfect atmosphere building. Like, it, it just the sound design, like the horrible industrial, like scraping sounds, 
are just absolutely vile. The way it uses the Leatherface character, which is what all the sequels have completely forgotten, it uses the Leatherface character so sparingly. You get a glimpse of this maniac with a chainsaw, then a fucking door slams, and you're just like, what the fuck? And then like you see very little gore in it. It's a brilliant allegory for America in the 1970s with the fear, basically, uh, you can tell I've written my dissertation on this, can't you, because I'm coming out of all this nonsense. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so it's basically, it's a fear of the, the unknown as the American city dwellers ventured more into the rural, into rural America. There was a fuel shortage in America at the time. They, they're basically, they're, they're struggling, they pull over to get some fuel and then meet these very weird characters. And it kind of, it's kind of almost, it kind of wrote the the blueprint for all of these, uh, so many horror films that you see now with kind of like weird regnet characters. And you look at the Wrong Turn series, you look at how many sequels it spawned. But it's just, for me, it's up there. It's the Exorcist, the Exorcist nearly made this list. This kind of trumps the Exorcist for me, although they are very, both very, very good films. But yeah, it's just something about the Chats of Strange Massacre that, that won't ever be bettered or equaled and it is just uh, for me the perfect horror film i absolutely love it yeah i remember paul um when we went to see uh, a showing of this in the downstairs of a pub do you remember uh, it's in the basement of, of a yes. pub and i think we were like the yes. only two people and then like two or three other people joined us uh for this little like geek fest that like i guess nobody had thought to show up for but like even on the i don't even know at this point and i don't really re-watch films that prolifically but this must have been the seventh seventh or eighth time that i saw texas chainsaw and like it loses very little of its power it's just you're right like you're just right it's, it's just an absolute marvel and um and horrible and grimy and it looks like they've thrown the film stock into a like a bucket filled with piss but that all serves <laughs> the film that all serves the the content of the film so yeah it, it stuck with me for a long time since i since i first saw it which would have been like god knows 20 years ago or something like that um what are we up to number four right four. okay number four from me um talking of things that stick with you for a long time uh since the first time that you saw them my number four pick is from 1977. It is the David Lynch debut feature, Eraserhead. Um, oh, I remember nice. when, well, of course for this, but I remember when I saw this for the first time, I was um, watching it on my own, obviously, and because uh, I don't have any friends. No, because uh, I used to, I had this ritual, and I'm sure you did too, Paul, and, and many film fans did, where like you'd sort of, um, squirrel away movies into like a corner of your house where you probably weren't supposed to watch these movies because you were too young or whatever but you get your hands on everything you possibly can that... in my case it was Showgirls Pete not a razor right. head so. right. <laughs> that says something I don't know what it is but and Species as well I squirreled away Species and Showgirls yeah. that was it I mean I, I wasn't averse to the odd uh, Shannon Tweed saxophone softcore erotica on Channel 5 or whatever <laughs> don't get me wrong but um, but yeah the first time I saw a razor head it, like, like a lot of people People. my reaction was kind of like what have I watched what what is this and like it went so against the grain of everything I was used to with film at that point which was like this has got some kind of obviously definable narrative there's a person that you're maybe rooting for or an anti-hero that you're rooting against and they go from A to B to C and in the end they face some kind of challenge or conflict and then it's resolved and in this movie what you've got is like these kind of disparate images in black and white of things falling through a space that can't be 
fully defined and sort of powders and liquids and what does it all mean? No, it's it's pretty obvious, Pete. That space is inside a radiator, <laughs> isn't it? That's it's pretty but, obvious. Come on. <laughs> but but yeah, at the middle of it all, you've got this uh, the character played by Jack Nance, uh, Henry Spencer, who like does do some things that you can recognise in terms of narrative, in terms of like um, going to visit his girlfriend's parents' house and the famous scene in which they have uh, little individual chickens that then start moving, and like I guess probably it came to me about the second time or maybe late on in my first viewing of this film that there's something altogether different going on here which is like this growing and horrifying fear that this character has of fatherhood and I think that the more you read into a Razorhead and the more you sort of research the movie you realize that this was a fear that came purely from the you know twisted imagination of David Lynch and, and the things that he was going through in his life at the time and being a man who married fairly young and you know not for the only time um, in his life but yeah like it, Eraserhead is one of those that sounds like, I, I'm aware, like sort of a wanky uh, university undergrad pick of favourite film. It's not my favourite film. It's not even close to my favourite film. But for a list of the this kind of list where you're talking about things that stick with you and things that help to define the way that you sort of understand uh, films in general, I think, it's absolutely like essential and, and yeah, just kind of like life-defining and ch life-changing, to be honest, in terms of the way that I relate to, to film. Um, so, yeah, I couldn't leave it off the list. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. It very nearly made my list, I have to say, probably for the same reasons. But I would what I would say, if, if you're not familiar with Lynch, uh, that you should be. Uh, and if you're not, then I would say start with a razor head, then immediately afterwards watch the straight story. <laughs> watch the man do non-linear narrative and then watch him do an incredible linear narrative. Like, yeah, watch a razor head, watch the straight story. If you haven't seen either, watch them both. But yeah, raise ahead, good pick, Pete. Um, what have I got then? We're in number three now, aren't yep. we? In this order. Getting up there. Oh, I'm not sure. Is there an order to these? If there is an order to these, then I'm going to go with... It had to be in there, didn't it? It had to be in there somewhere. Empire Strikes Back is at number three. That, listeners, is a Star Wars film, if you're not aware. And I don't know if anyone is aware, but I'm quite a big Star Wars fan. Well, I was up until The Last Jedi. I had to get that in there. Uh, so this is Empire Strikes Back, which for me, as a piece of Hollywood entertainment, much like Gladiator, has pretty much got it all. It took uh, it took the established characters from Star Wars, it upped the ante uh, with an incredible, like one of sci-fi's best opening scenes, the, the ice battle on Hoth is just an incredible piece of cinema. Uh, it took the tone uh, a lot more adult and a lot darker. It delivered the twist, spoiler warning, <laughs> uh, that Darth Vader is in fact Luke's father at the end. Had an incredible lightsaber fight. Han Solo gets frozen in carbonite. The Empire start to win. Uh, it, it looks incredible. It's just, you've got, just every, for me, this is peak Star Wars. Absolutely peak Star Wars. And I, I don't, even, like, a lot of people, there's, there's, there's normally an argument between this and the New Hope being better. Yes, a New Hope came out, a New Hope kind of changed the game uh, and, and kind of changed what people thought could be done with sci-fi, certainly in, certainly in blockbuster cinema. And, and it was incredible at building the world. But for me, it's a... A New Hope is a slight film in comparison to Empire, and I think that's because you've got Irving Kirshner directing here. I've never rated Lucas that highly as a director uh, as compared to the work Irving Kirshner does here. I just think, yeah, it just brings everything together in, in a superb middle episode. There's no there's no Ewoks in it. It doesn't drag. It's just it's, it's pitch black in tone, and the action scenes are absolutely incredible. Pete, Empire Strikes Back, you're not a big original trilogy fan at all, are you? Or are you where uh, do you stand no, on? I 
I'm a bigger original trilogy fan than I am, um, you know, the the number one, two, and three that obviously yeah. came out later. Um, but that's not really saying too much of anything, is no. it? Uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, we've had this discussion before. It, it's not that I, I... I think that these are fantastic movies, and I understand to a decent degree why they connect with just so many people as they clearly do. I just think it was maybe a timing thing for me, and, and if I had seen the Star Wars films, if I'd been taken to them maybe by my dad or I don't know if I'd seen them at home because they'd been in the house when I was a little kid, I may well have fallen in love with the films in the same way that like you and a lot of people have. But as it turned out, I didn't. And in fact, what happened was that I was pretty much forced to watch all of them at a particular friend's house. I won't name him. Uh, And it was a summer day and all I wanted to do, Paul, was go outside and play football. And all he said we could do was watch all these Star Wars films that to me seemed so old fashioned and disconnected from what I was interested in because I was like 13, 14 at the time I was like can we just not go outside so I think that didn't help in my um, my reception of those things no I just think yeah for me it's just it's the it's the the seminal Star Wars film and I think it's just got everything there and again if you come down to the fact that every time I watch it I enjoy it as much as I've enjoyed it the first time really which is basically kind of the crux of where where I've taken my list from is is I can just enjoy it as much every single time that I watch it. Empire Strikes Back is one of those films; it, it sticks with me. You know I love Star Wars. Empire Strikes Back is a big part of the reason I love Star Wars. So, number three from you, Pete. Number three for me is going to be uh, from 1955, the film Rafifi. Um, Rafifi, for people who aren't aware, it's a, it's a seemingly a very strange title for a movie, and maybe uh, slightly um, leaves people in the dark as to what it is. This is a, a heist film, Paul, and in my opinion, this is the probably the greatest heist film of all time. It certainly includes the greatest heist that I've ever seen on camera because the heist that takes place here in Rafifi is a group of bank robbers who are going to perform like the technic, like the most technically perfect uh, theft. When I say bank robbers, I think they're actually stealing diamonds, not not money. But uh, they've planned every single detail of this uh, heist. And it goes to the extent that like, you have all these pre-high sequences where they're figuring out the exact kind of alarm and how you can deactivate this alarm and what substance you could put in the alarm and how that would affect it. And they're doing trial runs and experiments. It's so meticulous. And then what ends up happening is that we get this heist in almost complete silence that is shot from all these like vertiginous angles in, in black and white. And it makes you feel so on edge and so nervous about the sl- a little bit like if I went for a contemporary comparison you know the sequence in the first Mission Impossible where he has to get into that room and he can't touch the floor and you know that like the smallest bead of sweat from his head could set the whole thing off right go way back to 1955 and you've got this moment in this movie where they lower an umbrella upside down through a roof cavity where they're they're making a, an entrance hole and they open the umbrella up in order to use it to catch every little bit of the ceiling that's falling in like as they're carefully just chipping into the room it it is astonishing astonishing filmmaking um yeah it's exciting it's engaging it's like actually quite joyful and quite flamboyant in the times where we're not in complete agonizing silence with these guys trying to put off the crime of a lifetime um i I just yeah i'm a massive fan of rafifi and i'll talk about it for too long if i don't shut up now because we're going really long already so i've i've got it on blu-ray and i've never watched it so i will watch it not a still book you won't you'd be pleased to know i don't have it on still book but i will watch it because i've had it for years and i haven't gone around to watch it so 
do it I as, as soon as possible. But I yeah, will. talking of as soon as possible, I have looked and we are going a bit long on the episode, so let's get to the top of the chart. What have you got next? Right, uh, this is 2000. If there, So if this list was to be greatest films of all time, as well as favourite films of all time, this would be on my list of what I think are the greatest films of all time as well. This is Paul Thomas Anderson's 2007 absolutely epic There Will Be Blood, starring, I would say, a never better Daniel Day-Lewis as uh, Daniel, as oil magnate or baron, complete madman, uh, Daniel Plainview, uh, who is whose performance here, as I said, is is second to none. Just an it's just an absolute monster of the screen, um, chewing up every scene that he's in. Uh, incredibly well supported by the I would say very underrated Paul Dano here. Um, just just the way this film looks, the way it's shot, the way. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson kind of drinks in the American scenery is just incredible um, it's just for me it's just a film that, that just stays with you the more you watch it I think the better it gets from a technical perspective as well I think the first what almost half first at least 15 minutes half an hour is completely dialogue free there's almost no sound at all uh, and it's just great it's just one of for me one of the most powerful pieces of contemporary American cinema out there full stop and again I don't think as much as I love Paul Thomas Anderson director I think he's made some great films I don't think he'll make a better film than this full stop that's my number uh, two do you, do you remember I was um, in Asia at the time when this movie came out and I saw it there but do you remember that this I presume here too came out very close to uh, No Country for Old Men yes and and I just remember at the time thinking like Oh, just contemporary cinema has just gone like next level. But obviously, it's not every month that you get those two releases. Well, apparently, there is a rumor that apparently, when they were shooting No Country for Old Men, they had to stop shooting because they could see the oil rig on fire from them shooting there, from the team shooting There Will Be Blood. Because apparently, they were shot that close together. I don't know whether they, if that's not an urban myth, that is incredible. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's an amazing thing. Talking about amazing things, Paul Anderson, my number two pick for this countdown, it could have easily been number one, and it probably has been on other charts that I've been in my life, is another one from David Lynch, Paul. It is Mulholland Drive. Oh, good Um, choice. Talking of, like, first time you see something totally changes everything. When the penny drops in your tiny, uh, developing teenage stomach as you're watching uh, Mulholland Drive and you realise, oh, oh, that's that's perhaps what's gone on here. Uh, I, I just a few moments in, in my film watching life have had such a sort of profound mind shattering impact as realising that, yeah, two thirds and one third and, you know, figure it out for yourself. Um, the film Mulholland Drive is, is basically the story of somebody going to Hollywood and realising that Hollywood is horrible. Um, set against <laughs> that, you have this uh, performance from uh, Naomi Watts which has never been bettered in her career in fact Naomi Watts is now in a show called Gypsy on Netflix which is the the fastest burning trash on the <laughs> Netflix dramatic trash fire it, it just like there's a sequence in it that I believe riffs on the theatre scene the the silencio uh, sequence in this movie and it's embarrassing for her and everybody involved but yeah the, the film is Naomi Watts character she goes to Hollywood she is wide eyed and seemingly unbelievable naive about the world that she's stepping into uh, and there'll be more on that later in the film if you stick with it. Uh, She meets this character played by Laura Harring who is called Rita or or is she? Uh, She's been in a car accident as Rita and she's got a bump to the head and she doesn't really know about herself so they've got to be sort of some kind of um, collective sleuthing team to figure out what has gone on who she is, where she needs to go and what on earth any of this means. I mean you have uh, Justin Theroux's character is is, uh, played for early 
quite early laughs in this movie and then also um some savage uh, action with golf clubs uh you've got uh the cowboy character who says you know the thing about how many times you're going to see him in the film being very important and it seems important but you don't really know why at the time <laughs> like, Lynch, a lot of things yes. that, that happen here yeah uh you've got you know boxes dropping on the floor you've got keys on tables you've got bleary-eyed masturbation you've got it all in uh, Mulholland Drive and it yeah uh, I understand that there are people who want to say like oh it just doesn't mean as much as you think it means and it's overrated and it was a failed aborted TV pilot and they cobbled together a film yeah cool you know enjoy having no joy in your life <laughs> Mulholland Drive is one of the finest contemporary films that has been made without a shadow of a doubt and this is coming from a director who then went on to direct Inland Empire which again could be on this chart and I could bore you all with the reasons for that if, if I had the chance but yeah if you haven't seen it watch it it will frighten you it will excite you it will fuck you up for life um, Paul what is number one it's a, great, it's a great pick number two for you there number one for me uh, is Jurassic Park like what more can be said about Jurassic Park that hasn't really been said I just everything about this this film just works the cast the music the special effects the set pieces the fucking dinosaurs in it there's dinosaurs everywhere which are great the t-rex scene is one of the most terrifying scenes i think committed to hollywood history the bit you've got that often imitated shot now where the water shakes where the t-rex stamps is just brilliant uh you've got the objects in the rearview mirror joke where he's being the t-rex everything the t-rex in is great you've got the velociraptors which are incredible villains and the amount of emotion they put into animatronics and the amount that they are terrifying is great and that's just the dinosaurs. I mean, the way you've got the cast, you've got Sam Neill playing the kind of down-to-earth, sort of marginally grumpy paleontologist character. Um, Laura Dern, your favourite Pete. Um, I was going to say, there. when are you getting to the um, fact that Laura Dern? I'm getting to Laura Dern. Laura Dern's in it, who again just plays off that plays off Sam Neill very, very well. And then I would say probably Jeff Goldblum's best role as Ian Malcolm, the uh, the the rock star mathematician, which again is just genius. It's just so silly. But Jeff Goldblum just plays this so, so well. The villainous lawyer type, they're all here. And then Richard Attenborough is the kind of lovely sort of Father Christmas old man who who made Jurassic Park with the best intentions. Everyone's playing character types, very familiar character types, but they're just played so, so well here. And just the excitement of the film and the soundtrack is just second to none. It's one of John Williams' finest scores, I think. And yeah, if there's ever a film that fills me with joy more than any other film, every time I watch it, it's Jurassic Park. That is my favourite film of all time, without a doubt. Pete, what have you got at number one? Strong pick. And and that part as well where they realise that the first two thirds of Jurassic Park didn't actually happen. <laughs> uh, and they're all sort of a, meta, a metaphor. Uh, yeah, no, amazing, amazing pick. And um, again, totally one that could be on my list because that is genuinely, like, unlike Star Wars, that is a bona fide pick for me and my experience in childhood where, like, watching that for the first time, I was just like, oh, I love films yeah. oh i love the cinema like oh this is a thing that i'm not gonna leave alone for probably the rest of my life because this is incredible well, no, exactly and it was it was the first film for me that i actually remember seeing the trailer for before up any press about the film that i could really so it's kind of the first film that i followed as an avid film fan whereas now we do it all the time it's a lot easier with the internet so i remember seeing the trailer and i was like i must see that film when it comes out so yeah no incredible incredible stuff pete what's your number one on your list sir 
So my number one film of all time, um, maybe, that I've uh, switched around <laughs> a few times perhaps, but um, is from 1956. It is the Don Siegel version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, and I will choice. tell you for why. Um, again, I saw it really early. I saw it probably 15 years old, something like that. I don't know. And it was one of those, again, that nobody, you know, sort of like somehow got hold of a copy or taped it off TV, or I don't even know how I saw this film for the first time. And, um, and I just realised that films could do and say and represent a lot more than what I'd believed up to that point. Um, the story of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, as if anyone needs telling, is, is all about these, these pods that have invaded and the way in which the people that seemingly used to be a certain way have become a certain other way. Um, and that way is devoid of human emotion, of love, of feelings. Um, and the fight of a couple of the characters here to pull things back to a place where we realise that those things matter, where the prevailing feeling is that we should all essentially give up and accept a life that is sort of less filled with suffering um, at the expense of uh, the beating heart and the experience of emotion that we previously had. Um, for example, the Dr. Miles, I've got a couple of quotes here, just humour me. Uh, the Dr. Miles J. Bennell character in this uh, says, in my practice, I've seen how people have allowed their humanity to drain away. Only it happened slowly instead of all at once. They didn't seem to mind, all of us, a little bit. We harden our hearts, we grow callous. Only when we have to fight to stay human do we realise how precious it is to us. How dear. Now, this film was released in 1956. The year is now 2018. And I think that that sentiment should be in the hearts and minds of like everybody across the globe at this point in time, because it's very easy in our modern culture to just be constantly distracted, to be a part of a marketing algorithm that wants to sort of drive us into a corner to behave and to be sort of pacified to a point of a, a, a near sort of societal catatonia where... Ah, uh, the, the the other scene, and I won't read out the quote again because I don't want to take too much time to wrap this up, but the scene in which the um, central female character is saying, but I don't want to live in a world like that. I don't want to live in a world without love, without feelings, without human emotion. It just, like, it comes back to me again and again and again. And every time I hear a glassy-eyed piece of like marketing junk that is forced on us in television commercials, radio commercials, billboards and all these things that surround us all the time, uh, you know, political polemic and all this kind of stuff. I go back to this movie and I go back to the, the particularly the 1956 version, although of course there's the 70s version with Donald Sutherland and so on and so forth. Just never watch the Nicole Kidman one uh, <laughs> called The Invasion or whatever because it is direct. But um, yeah, th just this general idea that when we see each other slipping into being disconnected and dispassionate and, and forgetting our humanity and our beating hearts, we need to pull back from that brink. And I think that's as relevant, if not more relevant in 2018 as it was in the 1950s so yeah uh, I, I i could i could like whoop for joy or break down in horrible tears talking about invasion of the body snatchers i love it very dearly um and i've really enjoyed doing this this countdown paul it has been a real uh, a really good time to actually just like kick back and talk about some things that maybe we try to shoehorn into other episodes <laughs> but don't really have the the space no, it's been good well yeah so thank everyone for listening well thank you for everyone who's listened to the, well any episode yeah alone all 100 of you if there's someone out that's listened to all 100 then 
Mercy, mercy on you, sirs, or ladies, in fact. Uh, yes, well, thank you, everyone, for listening to 100 episodes. We've gone on quite a while today, but I've, I've enjoyed it, Pete, personally. I think it's good. Yeah, uh, I, I had I had nothing to do, mate. I just uh, I just was like, oh, I need to pack for my holiday that I'm leaving for in the early hours of tomorrow morning. But that's fine, because, you know, we live in the kind of world where, you know, we're lucky enough to be able to do things like just jet off on holiday on a whim. So, uh, yeah, I cannot complain for a single moment. And, and I cannot complain as well about the fact that we get to together every week to do this show it does take a bit of time it does take a bit of effort it's not always entirely <laughs> no. convenient for any of us on on you know particular days but but at the same time you know we so massively appreciate anybody and everybody as Paul says that listens to the show anybody who shares it around or tells us even in passing that they thought one of the episodes we did was <laughs> all right or not total shit or whatever we we love all of that and we'll continue to do it because we love doing it uh, and yeah we just hope you're along for the ride and um, I guess I've run out of words for today anything else? Uh, no, well, just find us on usual social media. It's basically, if you Google Strangers in a Cinema, we are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Twitter at Strangers Cinema. So catch up with us there if you like what you've heard. Uh, we'll be back next week with the new improved. Well, let's hopefully, well, we'll see if it's improved or not. The new format of Strangers in a Cinema, volume 1.3, I think you described it as, Pete. But for now, that's been episode 100. Thank you again for listening, and we'll catch up with you later. See ya.